You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This episode was sponsored by iPlaySafe, the new app that's removing the ick from sharing STI test results with potential partners. Download the free, medically approved app to order your home STI testing kit, and your results will be sent directly to your app verifying your sexual health status. It's then up to you when and with whom and whether you share it. The free app also gives you access to articles, podcasts and sexual education content. And you can find them on Instagram at iPlaySafeApp. Join the iPlaySafe community today. So today's episode is a slightly different take on the topic of psychosexual therapy in that the focus is going to be on the person in the other chair and what it's like to be in the client chair rather than my position as a therapist. So my guest for this is the brilliant Emma-Louise Boynton, who's written about her experience of psychosexual therapy in an incredible column entitled Conversations with My Sex Therapist. She has taken this even further and now hosts a brilliant monthly event series called Sex Talks at the London Edition Hotel. She's the founding editor at The Stack World and hosts the Talking Taboos podcast with Day. So in short, she has had psychosexual therapy and now we can't stop her talking about sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good introduction and it's so true. (laughs) Honestly, I say this at the beginning of every single sex talks. If you had told me a year ago, maybe a bit more than a year ago, that the bulk of my professional work would now be focused on sex I would have been like wait what (laughs) are you joking um but it is just such a fascinating topic area and weirdly I actually wrote my dissertation many years ago on sex and power so I've been always interested with sex as a topic area but I guess it just took me seven years in the wilderness um before I went into sex therapy to kind of refine it as something I really wanted to explore but yeah it is fascinating Mm, I'm really pleased that you wanted to come on and have this conversation because I can bang on about psychosexual therapy for years and talk about it and explain it and explore it, but it never really will offer anyone listening to this the feeling of knowing what it would be like to be a client. And I can only ever talk about it from my experience. And obviously anecdotally, you know, I've worked with hundreds of people Mm. who are in the client chair, but I don't ever claim to be expert enough to say that I know exactly what that feels like apart from having my own experience of therapy Mm. but not psychosexual therapy and so I think it's amazing that we get to have this conversation and Mm. to clarify for anyone listening I obviously was not your therapist and you were not my client so this isn't a conversation that we've decided to take out the therapy room of us working together um, in case of any ethical concerns that anyone might have about that but I guess I mean, shall we start kind of where it started, mm-hmm. which is you went to psychosexual therapy because you were struggling to orgasm or mm-hmm. you'd previously felt like or previously been able to orgasm mm-hmm. and then weren't able to. And that was something that you were trying to get back. Yeah. And just, I mean, to begin that, I had no idea sex therapy was a thing. I had mm. didn't know it existed. It was not within my you know, viewpoint. I basically had been able to orgasm with my ex-boyfriend years ago. He was the only person that ever made me orgasm. And when we broke up, and this was like 
six, seven years ago, perhaps, um, I just stopped being able to orgasm in partnered sex completely. And it actually begun to stop towards the end of our relationship as things began to break down. And so about six to seven years passed in which I could orgasm on my own, fine, no problem. But with someone else, I just couldn't. And I felt ultimately just really broken and I would always say to friends I'm just not that much of a sexual person I don't really like Mm. sex I'm not really that into it I've had quite a lot of bad experiences previously which I can go into later and just didn't think so just to just kind of put it to the side as if it wasn't something that was particularly important for me to have to address and it wasn't until last Chris, oh, two Christmases ago now, so not the last one, the one before that, that I was having dinner with a friend and I was explaining this and I was just like, yeah, I, you know, I can't orgasm with somebody else. Saying what I've just said to you, you know, I, I'm just not a sexual person. It's just, it's not really my thing. You know, I have other interests. <laughs> I have other things I like. <laughs> and she was like, she looked so puzzled and she said, Emma, you know, you can do something about that. I was like, what? What do you, what do you mean? She's like, you, you can go to a sex therapist. You know that this is something you can actually fix if you, if you want to. As it transpired, totally serendipitously, at this dinner table was not one but two women who'd both had sex therapy and both the same sex therapist. So she put me in touch with the sex therapy, sex therapist who's actually based in Australia. And I just thought, I wasn't that bothered to be honest because I just so disconnected from myself sexually that yeah. I just thought, is this even worth the time? Like, I'm not a sexual being. But nonetheless, decided I'd go for it and see what happened. And then simultaneously, um, the wonderful Charmaine Reed, who was uh, setting up the stack at the time, and I was, as you said, a founding editor, doing lots of writing for them, said, you know what, you should document your experience of doing sex therapy. And so she commissioned the series Conversations with My Sex Therapist. Um, And I mean, props to her for doing that because it's such a good idea. And I do have to say, I don't think, had she not commissioned it, I don't know if I would have followed through with sex therapy because I think Mm. I need, again, I'd so... I just so disconnect from that part of myself. I needed like an incentive and I'm very work driven. So suddenly having this like professional incentive was like, right, okay, this is something that I actually have to do. And yeah, so I went from being not knowing what sex therapy was to now being the biggest advocate for sex therapy and what it can help you with. Mm. That's so interesting, isn't it? That, that having the column was the motivation that you needed because we often talk about in therapy how we don't get change without motivation. That has to be the kind of the force that pushes us to do, inverted commas, the work mm. to make the change. It's true. And I think because in part, I'm quite impatient and I want things to be fixed immediately. And mm. I think with writing the column, I had a reason to keep showing up in my ther- my virtual therapy room, which I think perhaps I would have been, I would have maybe, you know, lost interest and actually not even lost interest I think this actually feeds into one of my biggest like takeaways from sex therapy and this is part of the reason for it so kind of just going a little bit into kind of why I went going I went because I couldn't orgasm but I realized in going to sex therapy that a huge part of the reason I couldn't orgasm was that I had just become so disconnected from my body and and I wrote about this in the column I had an eating disorder from age 12 I was then severely anorexic from about kind of 13 to 15 bulimic as well and then honestly bulimic until I you know until like last year like it was something that had continued in like 
periods, obviously dependent on where I was, how anxious I was, that sort of thing. But it was a really enduring eating disorder, which meant that for the majority of my adult life, I have spent so much time and mental energy seeking to escape my body feeling uncomfortable in it. Every time I'd look in the mirror, I'd analyze, okay, what is fatter? What is uglier? Like, what is is wrong here? How can I be better? How can I fix this? I never, never put aside time. I never saw my body as a vessel for pleasure. It was just a vessel for pain. It was one I'd inflicted so much pain on from starving myself, making myself sick. Then, you know, when I was younger, drinking too much, just constantly trying to escape this prison that I'd created for myself. And I think... It was one of the first things we really delved into in sex therapy because my sex therapist, Alex, who's totally brilliant, was made the point. She was like, if you can't be in your body, you're you're going to really struggle to find pleasure in sex because you're always, even in that moment, when you're supposed to be ideally as present as possible, it's such an embodied experience, ideally, whether that's sex with yourself or sex with another person. If you're not used to being able to be feel that sense of embodiment in a kind of peaceful, enjoyable way, then it is very unlikely that you are going to be able to orgasm. And mm. that's kind of the, almost like the least of your worries. And so one of the first things that she asked me to do was to keep a pleasure journal, which when she said that, I was like, right, so she wants me to document my masturbation. That's going to be weird. <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't that. Instead, she it was just every day, write down five things that give you bodily pleasure. And that's mm. not doesn't have to be sexual. Your first with coffee in the morning, that trickle of water down your back when you have a shower. And even though I was pretty inconsistent in keeping to this, it really struck me how seldom I noted or sought bodily pleasure up until that point and so as a practice it was just kind of like the first step towards making me more aware of my body as being a potential source of pleasure rather than just pain and I think I've slightly deviated from your question um but I think yeah so sorry so going back to the idea of of like kind of the motivation for kind of keeping up with something because I had got become for so long so used to not seeing my body as a place of pleasure and hating it so much. I think I probably would have quit really early because I just wouldn't have seen it as worth it because I just didn't value my body enough and I didn't value myself enough. So having the column kind of forced me to continue showing up. And I think genuinely that has been the biggest impact that sex therapy has then had on me because I think it really was the beginning I don't I definitely didn't realize this when I started but it was was the beginning of me genuinely changing my relationship with my body and I never ever thought that was possible and Mm. I now like what is it kind of more than a year on obviously it's still you know forever work in progress but I genuinely don't hate my body and I can find pleasure in it and it's something that I now really actively um seeking bodily pleasure even small things like lighting a candle for myself when I go to bed having a bath kind of slowing down a bit they're just things I just did not allow into my life because I just had this like it was so embedded in my mindset that they were kind of wastes of time wastes of energy and I wasn't worth it so Mm. yeah it's so interesting that idea to me it makes so much sense because so much of the time in psychosexual therapy what we're teaching people to do is to notice and be aware and be present and in the moment and to experience sex pleasure whatever's going on sensation and 
it's almost like you were doing that in tiny little bite-sized bits so noticing the water in the shower and I think modern life in lots of ways sets us up to do the opposite we're obsessed with productivity busyness multitasking you know what can we do how fast can we do it how can we get the best result that actually the the kind of current landscape of our sex lives or our sensual lives or you know whatever you want to put it just general daily life is very not very feeling based not very notice based not very aware and so it's a practice that we then have to build back in Mm. but it's one we feel uncomfortable with in lots of ways totally and we're so disembodied and even I was I I think I was reading a stat the other day that said that one of the key like maybe the top issue that women always say that they experience in sex is a feeling of like self-consciousness around their body so I just think as Mm. women specifically we are cultured to I think have quite a difficult relationship with our body from day one I do think kind of the general rhetoric around body I feel like body neutrality rather than body positivity but there is a growing movement to to, I think kind of reset the very damaging body norms that I certainly feel like I grew up with but I do think typically I don't you know so many of my female friends have had issues with food and with eating with their body previously and so I think women are always beginning on the back foot of this idea of embodiment because we're already learning from such a young age to not like our bodies and to kind of want to step out of them constantly looking at looking at them as sites for a constant improvement mm. I think that's how I always saw my body it was a it was a need of improvement it was never quite there yet which again I think is like the antith that's like an antithetical way of being that's like anti- sorry that's antithetical to being mindful and present mm. is existing in a state of uh perpetual supposed transformation trying to be like tomorrow I'll be better tomorrow I will be deserving of pleasure you know they're therefore like totally not in the moment and had you made any connection to having an eating disorder to what you were struggling with before that or was it the first time or did you have an inkling that might be where the therapy would go or that's a great question I don't think I did I think me I don't think so I think I, the first therapy session I had, we really delved into my sexual history, obviously. Mm. And to, I'd been assaulted when I was uh, 17. I'd had, a lot of my friends had begun having sex uh, quite young. I went to an all-girls school, it was just kind of what happened. And as I said, I had an eating disorder, so I kind of really delayed my like hitting puberty and everything, but felt this tremendous pressure to be having sex really young just to keep up with everybody else. So I think we really, we began on that point of like unpacking all my previous sexual experiences, which I think certainly had contributed to a feeling that sex was always for someone else and not for me. Mm. It was always something I felt like I had to do rather than, until my ex-boyfriend who totally changed that I mean, falling in love was a good way of beginning to to mend some of those more kind of damaging narratives. But I think my focus had always been, yes, I'd had had lots of sex I hadn't really enjoyed. And that's what had instituted in me this idea of sex as being purely performative. I don't think I then made the connection with the eating disorder, at least not in such a profound way. And actually, those two things are so interconnected because having sex in that performative way 
and feeling like it was something that I just had to do. It wasn't really a choice. It was for somebody else's pleasure. That was also, you know, part and parcel of me not really respecting my body, of it being something that I was just seeing as you know, disposable. You know, I just, I didn't care for it. So those were interconnected, but I just don't think I'd made that strong connection. And then interestingly, my sex therapist actually works on an eating disorders ward. So her work has always been really connected to eating disorders and how they connect with sexual issues. So it was Mm. such serendipity, I think, that then we, you know, then I began to talk about the eating disorder and it really, that became the focus of what we discussed Mm. in the therapy room. And it's so interesting what you're saying there, because when we think of sex as performative rather than pleasure-based, we're kind of assessing our performance as we do it. So we are not in the moment. We are constantly thinking, how am I doing? Or how do they think I'm doing? Or how is this going? Or are they having a good time? And those things don't help us to be in the moment. They keep us in our heads Mm. and not in our bodies. It's so true. And I think you also, you then don't learn what you actually like. I genuinely think I'm 29 now and I think I'm beginning to understand what I need and like sexually. And obviously that changes and evolves throughout your throughout your life. But sex had just been so performative. It was I was always seeing it, as you say, through uh, the other person's perspective and very much being that like kind of even like almost doing it subconsciously, like making the noises, making like putting myself in positions just to like hopefully appease the other person rather than actually connecting in with what I liked. And I think the thing that I found really helpful in therapy was it really forced me to begin to think about what makes me feel safe in sex. And there's a term that um, the CEO of Galdem, Mariel, I think, she wrote a newsletter about this notion of emotional safety recently, which really resonated with me. There's like, what are the things that you need to do or say or kind of put in place to feel emotionally self emotionally safe essentially what are your boundaries and boundary just they just that wasn't part of my sexual lexicon previously it really yeah. wasn't as i said feeds in with the whole body thing and i think doing sex therapy i had to really continually confront what my boundaries are and what makes me feel safe. And Esther Perel talks about um, safety as being like the most important thing to allow sex to be playful. Yeah. And I mean, the idea that sex was playful was just, again, I didn't think sex was playful. Sex was like, I'd come at it with this, like so much anxiety of like, am I good enough? Do I do the right things? Does, does this person think I'm too experienced? I've slept with too many people or do they think that I totally inexperienced and I haven't slept enough, that whole Madonna Hall complex. Mm. Um, but I think the idea that sex is meant to be playful is obviously, it's such a lovely, joyful way of seeing it. But you do need things, you do need to feel safe in order to be able to participate in that way. Absolutely. And it was actually only recently, again, like post, post-sex therapy, I was seeing someone for a bit and he always referred to sex as like playing and he'd like laugh during sex. I'd be like, what are you doing? This is, oh my gosh. And it really threw me at first. But in the end, it was like a really, he was like, but this is fun. It's just, we're just playing. It's meant to be fun. We're just playing. I'm laughing and smiling because we're playing. And I think I didn't realize how ultimately, you know, he ended up, he created a context that made me feel really emotionally safe and 
I realised it was actually for the first time that that someone had actively done that on their end, but I'd also been in a place where I was able to allow that, where I was yeah. able to lower my defence mechanisms and be present and think of sex as something that was playful. What's interesting, though, I did think when we were just seeing each other for a bit and when things began to, like, break down a bit, I then stopped being able to orgasm with him. And I thought your body... For me, it had made me realise the whole relationship. Once you've done sex therapy, you see everything through the prism of sex therapy and what you've learned. But I realised retrospectively that what makes me feel safe in the context of sex is all the things that happen prior to sex that day. Mm. So when I'm with somebody, when they reach back their hand when we're walking to hold my hand, that to me is such a like huge like indicator that I'm that they're like like not looking after me, but that they care. Or when they like automatically reach to put their arm around me, it's those small, really tactile gestures that make me feel really like safe and loved. Then when you take that into the context of sex, you've already contextually, I've kind of mentally set myself up in feeling like very like cared for. And then I feel able to relax and actually then can orgasm. When that stopped with that particular person, I think I hadn't realised how much that that fed into like my, how I related to them sexually. So as soon as those small gestures disappeared, I just stopped being able to orgasm, which I kind of mm. think props my body for being able to be like, this obviously <laughs> isn't working anymore. So you're not going to feel the full pleasure. So you have less to miss when when it breaks down. Mm, it's a, but I think it's Esther Perel. I mean, I'm sure it's Esther Perel. She normally is the person who says everything otherwise. <laughs> says foreplay starts the minute you wake up in the morning. Yeah. So it's not, and we know we have this whole idea of foreplay being confined to the just before and actually, my amazing friend and colleague, Karen Gurney, talks about this all the time, this idea of sexual currency, that we are banking it and building it and establishing it so that it's there kind of creating, mm-hmm. creating, I suppose, an amount to be spent and that we are building that up all the time. And I think that for me, it's interesting hearing you saying that because for me, one of the biggest things I think that I help people to do in my job is we reframe sex or we redefine sex. And that involves looking at every aspect of it. And as you said, it's not this going into it thinking it's a job or something you have to Mm. do or something that, you know, an act or a commitment. But actually we work out what do I want to get from a sexual experience and also understanding that it's fluid, that even if we've had the same partner for 10 years, we can have different sex on different days, that it can offer us something different, that Sometimes we might just want an orgasm, the other time we might want to feel really close and connected. Mm. That sometimes we just might not be able to sleep and that might help us to kind of calm down or fall into fall asleep. It's it's this variety that we don't seem to have ever included in the definition of sex. And I think in reframing it with people a lot, we always talk about that. You know, what do I want my sex life to look like? What do I understand my sex life to be? What is it going to offer me? What would I like it to feel like? How would I like it to be? And understanding that it's not a fixed concept in the way that we don't feel like eating the same food every day, in the way that we don't like doing the same thing every single day Mm. in exactly the same way for the rest of our lives. We have the variability in what we decide to wear that morning, Mm. what we want to eat, what we want to drink, how we're feeling, whether we feel like exercising, how much, how invested we feel in our work that day or not. 
if we want to phone our mum or we decide actually we just don't want to. I mean, it's just so, it blows my mind how we have this complete acceptance of individuality, variability in every other aspect of our lives apart from when it comes to sex. And when it comes to sex, we're like, right, this is the definition Mm -hmm. of sex. It's very small. You've got to do it that way. You should all like it the same way. And anything else that sits outside those parameters doesn't count. And that serves nobody. Nobody. And I know I'm, I mean, as you know, I'm actually, I'm a big fan of your podcast and I've listened to most of your episodes prior to this one. (laughs) And I know something that comes up a lot that you always say is you ban the word should from your therapy room. And I Mm -hmm. think that has also been so key for me. There is no should when it comes to sex, but I think we grow up, I mean, I think sex education just generally is so bad. I mean, my sex education at school was don't get pregnant, don't get an STI. This is how terrifying childbirth is, just in case you weren't scared enough. I mean, it was just so (laughs) minimal. And it meant like, you know, your first experiences with sex were, you know, often just so they came from a position you had no education and no language to express yourself and as we know communication is such an important thing and so I think you know you have to but so we end up growing up I think with you we fill in the gaps of our lack of sex education with kind of little so in such a piecemeal way of what you hear from friends what you hear from the like guys at the school you meet when you're 15 and so you just have this really like well for me definitely like kind of shoddy collage of ideas around what sex should be like Mm -hmm. and it is very prescriptive and I think you know we do societally have a real I think I think primacy on male pleasure as opposed to female pleasure which then contributes this obviously deferring of like you know I'm showing up for somebody else's pleasure not my own and I think you need to and this is what sex therapy again was so useful to me for is it forced me to unpack and unpick all the ideas that had contributed to my personal sexual script and kind of go back to the start and be like, okay, if you took away all these layers of should, Mm -hmm. all these ideas of what you think sex should be, all your ideas about yourself and your body and how you relate to other people, if you take all that away and you just begin at kind of ground zero, where are we at? And that's also then when it is kind of, you know, when it is experimental and playful. And at the recent sex talks I did um, uh, last month, the amazing sex educator Ruby Rare said that. Love she, Ruby. She's so fab. And she was saying how, um, you know, as you just said, we, we, we the sex we want today might be very different to what we want tomorrow. And she says, you know, we all have a lot to learn from queering sex, from this idea, let's take every sexual encounter as a new sexual encounter in which you don't know how you're mm-hmm. going to relate to that person. It might be a bit different. Experiment. And that's when it, you know, that's playful sex. I think that's how it, I was about to say that's how it should be. Obviously no shoulds, but I think that's <laughs> how you can take kind of more, you know, joy from it. And I mean, I mentioned just then like communication being such an important thing. That was also the message that my sex, I think that was every single session should say communication, communication, communication. And it's funny because I became very good at talking and writing about the importance of communication during sex. It took me a really long time, slash I'm still working on this, to actually be able to communicate during sex. Mm. And I think, again, you know, you talk about like unpacking and like rewiring all the cultural scripts you grow up with around sex. For me, one of the hardest ones, perhaps even harder than like learning to inhabit my body with a little more joy and a little less hate is 
being able to verbalize and vocalize what I want and how I feel during sex. And I mean, that does really go back to how safe I feel in the situation, how comfortable I feel with the person. But there's something I still find quite strange about hearing my own voice in the context of sex. And I think that probably is because it is so, I guess it is such a embodied thing you are so present when you're vocalizing what you want and how you're feeling in the moment you really are having to be very present which again was something that I'd avoided doing for so many years but if you want to enjoy sex you do need to be able to say to the person like that feels really good that doesn't feel really good and not assume that everyone automatically knows and I think this was something this comes up all the time in in sex talks this idea that I think so many of us carry so many anxieties around sex. And I think a lot of it is to do with this lack of sex education and creating this kind of piecemeal idea of who we are sexually and what being sexual, a sexual being is like. But carry all this anxiety. I refer to them in one talk as backpacks of anxieties that we all take, <laughs> that we all take into the therapy, not the ther- into sex. But assuming that the other person is anxiety free, that they yeah. show up to sex and they are some sex god who knows exactly how to pleasure you, how to pleasure themselves, is just so there and just so, you know, sexually fabulous. And they're there, you know, it goes back to the performative thing. They're there almost kind of judging you and like looking for the holes in your kind of sexual veneer. And then you begin to realize that everyone is, mm-hmm. and, and it's since doing sex, obviously because I now talk, you can't shut me up about sex now. It's an interesting, because now I talk about it so often. I think it invites people automatically to then share quite a lot with me. Definitely. And I am so amazed at how many people, both, you know, girls, boys, men, women, everyone, so many people feel so much residual anxiety around sex because we carry with us, just like when we go into relationships, we carry with us the scars and the traumas and the experiences of our past. So we're all showing up with so much baggage. And I think the only way to really navigate that is by communicating and communicating really vulnerably and really honestly. And I think that's as true in relationships as it is in sex. Mm. I would argue actually that learning how to talk about sex, particularly with a partner, is actually one of the hardest things to do. I actually think that the talking about it sometimes can feel harder than the doing it. And I think that one of the things about psychosexual therapy is you're getting some practice in. It's kind of you're modelling how to have those conversations. You're practising how to have the conversations, obviously not with a partner, but in an environment where it feels safe to do so, I suppose a bit like kind of driving lessons or a bit like a, I suppose like a simulation of what it might feel like to hear those words come out your mouth or what it might feel like to say, actually, I really don't like being touched on this part of my body could we try something else or identifying those things so that also a bit a bit a bit like muscle memory that once we've done it once it's not as uncomfortable even if it's not being replicated in exactly the same position we have an idea of what it might feel like and I think that there is something therapeutic even just in that and I, I'm, I'm sure that relates to kind of all models of therapy rather than just psychosexual therapy but I think there is something in that and then something else you said there was about scripts and I think I talk about scripts and narratives a lot but this 
discovery that we can have in psychosexual therapy, particularly that the scripts that we have about sex actually weren't written by us, but we are the ones following them. Mm. And that can feel really strange because I say to people things like, but where did you get that message about Mm. sex from? Or where did you learn that about sex? And sometimes it does go back to exactly what you just said. When we whittle it down or we get down to it, it's like, do you know what? I think it was in the playground. Mm. Or I think it was when in the changing room at school before PE. And when we're having those conversations, people say, but that can't have played such a big part in where I am now. You know, here I am as a 32-year-old man and I'm relating sex to something that I heard when I was 13, 14, getting dressed before PE. Like, how can how can that be the case? And when we talk about it, it's because at that time, sex is such a big deal. We don't have the education. We don't have the ability to kind of think in a more abstract adult way. And because there's no space to ask questions or publicly query or ask for confirmation or trial and error, we take on all of that information kind of very strongly and we're like right okay well that's what I've got to do or not do and I can't ask anyone I can't check it out so that's what I'm gonna have to do yeah totally it's like we have this like completely unfiltered you just kind of consume all this often like misinformation about sex or just kind of like hearsay everything and I think you know you also get to know yourself better as you get older I think your filters generally become much better But I think, therefore, it's quite interesting when you see, when you have to confront the ideas and the how the impact that certain ideas have had on you in a really long term, huge way that happened before the filtering system got a bit better. Mm. And I think it's kind of it's as you say, it's quite kind of shocking to realise how long term some of these things like how long-term the impact can be of some of these things, mm. as, as you say. Just going back really quickly to what you said about um, the almost like the muscle memory practice that you get by being in the therapy room. I really think that is one of the most important and impactful things about sex therapy, at least from my perspective. Because a lot of the time with the with like sexual dysfunction, uh, with any of these things where they're still taboo around the topic, we feel... The person, this is certainly my experience, feeling in in that place, feels very alone in that experience. Like I felt, as I said, I felt broken. And it's only now in having all these conversations around sex and then hosting sex talks that 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 phrase, I thought I was broken, I felt broken, is probably the most common phrase to come up when people talk to me about sex. Definitely. But you have this whole collection of people all feeling broken, but feeling alone in their brokenness and therefore unable to talk about that feeling and what's causing it. And so I think when you then go into the therapy room and you're telling someone what, you know, it's really stuff that, I mean, I'm not, I don't have that much, like, I don't really get embarrassed that much about stuff. But I mean, when I was talking to my therapist, I was going quite deep into like the the ins and outs of the eating disorder. And I haven't really talked to somebody about that and that level of depth and then how that fed into sex. It was such, you know, that is just not a conversation I would have with anybody. And as you say, having someone hear that, not be shocked by that information and then say, gosh, this is actually really common. You're really not alone in this. That was so huge. I felt 
it, I think it removed any residue of shame that I had around my sexual dysfunction and it's linked to this eating disorder. And I think anytime there's mental health issues involved, like with my with an eating disorder, there's already so much shame there because especially when with bulimia, I think, you know, I, I, I speak very openly about having been anorexic and, you know, the impact it had, but I think I speak, I kind of always, it's this thing that happened in the past. It's very disconnected from me now because I think ultimately there is a lot of shame around eating disorders and bulimia particularly. It's messy. It's gross. It's kind of, you know, it's, it doesn't really bear thinking about. And so it's really hard to talk about normally. So being able to discuss that in a therapy room context and feel less alone, more normal, and then being able to, it's kind of was the first step to then being able to move past that and move forward. And I think one thing I also want to mention is that when I first started sex therapy, quite a few people were surprised that I was doing it while single and didn't have a sexual partner. And so many people asked me like, hang on, don't you need to be in a relationship? Like, don't you need to be doing sex therapy with someone because you're having sex? And I mean, I'm sure, you know, in the context of being in a couple, it can be great and really helpful. Yeah, so I think having, being able to have that conversation uh, with someone in a non-judgmental context as a way, as you say, almost of like practicing what that feels like and what that sounds like. And even for me, being able to talk about like my genitalia, being able to talk about my desires, this is just not things I'd been comfortable mm. verbalizing previously. And one thing I also really wanted to highlight is a lot of people, when I mentioned that I was doing sex therapy at the time, were like, hang on a second, but you're single. Don't you need to be in a relationship, like having yeah. sex to get sex therapy? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I mean, evidently no, because <laughs> I'm doing sex therapy. <laughs> but I actually think, I'm sure sex therapy in the context of a couple can be super beneficial and has its like kind of unique um, benefits. Uh, in that context but I think that your relationship to yourself and to your body and to yourself as a sexual being I think it's really important to have a grasp of that and to really get to know yourself in that way before you get to the partnered sex bit absolutely because otherwise you're going in I think to be able to you know I said before the importance of boundaries you can't really know your own personal boundaries if you don't know yourself well and you don't Mm. know yourself sexually. Definitely. And I think one of the common assumptions about psychosexual therapy is that it's just for couples. But I work with lots of people who are in relationships but don't want to come to psychosexual therapy with their partner or are single or their relationship broke up because of what was going on and they want to make sure that they deal with it before going into a next relationship. I think it really is for anyone at whatever stage they're at. And I think it is a really useful thing to say because so many people might be thinking, I'd like to access that kind of help, but I'm single, does that mean I can't? And it would be a good thing to clear up. But I think also that feeling that you were just saying about feeling alone, I mean, I hear, I think it is, and anyone that's listened to more than one episode will probably have heard me say this, I think the biggest side effect of challenges, difficulties, dysfunctions with sex is a feeling of isolation. And I say it all the time because I think it's incredibly important. But I also just think it is the biggest indicator that the problem we have is actually with our culture around sex. And because of that, and it not being 
wildly sex positive or open or normalized that too many people, probably all of us to some degree or most of us to some degree, internalize that cultural feeling of discomfort. And we all assume it's us. And that is just such a bizarre place for us to all be sexually. And I think at the moment, there's just so many contradictions in terms of sex. I think we're actually really turning a corner in terms of sexual wellness. But if you spoke to 100 people, I suspect more than 90 would say that sex is still taboo or makes them feel a bit awkward or there's something uncomfortable about it. Or if they had a sexual problem, they would feel, as you said, ashamed or embarrassed, broken, not normal. You know, I'm talking about 100 people. If we ask these 100 people hypothetically, that is not an indicator. It, It isn't just actually that all of us as individuals have a sexual problem. It means that our overarching sexual culture, um, messaging, education, wellness, the way it's integrated into society is is fundamentally broken. We're getting it wrong. Mm. And that's a top-down problem, not a bottom-up problem. Totally. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the universality of the anxieties that people hold around sex. And I have to say, as soon as I, as I said, I started talking more openly to people about sex and how I experienced it. I was really, I have to say, I was really shocked at particularly how many male friends then voiced their own concerns Mm. and anxieties and I think we put I mean we know we talk about toxic masculinity a lot but the pressure on men as well I think you know we have I think there really is a taboo around female pleasure but I think for men as well it's this idea that they need you know there's so much um, pressure to perform and to be the kind of you know to be kind of like macho to be the one that like you know can you get it up the whole time can you can you come if you don't it's more obvious sometimes I think for men when there is mm. like an issue crops up and I think you know I had a lot quite a few male friends say to me how you know when something does not work as it's like meant to um sexually how they don't feel equipped the language with which to then talk about it. And then the other person evidently doesn't know and will oftentimes say, oh, is it me? Have I done something wrong? Which then just creates this whole context in which both people feel really embarrassed, really uncertain. Everyone feels shit. Everyone Everyone feels feels shit. shit. And everyone feels like it was their fault. And like, then you're trying, you know, the other person's trying to comfort, like, no, it's not you, it's it's me. But then I'm really embarrassed that it's me. And I, I think that we see that also reflected back to us on our screens and movies yeah. and series and things where the only conversations that we tend to see, so those are often the only conversation that we have an actual visual and audible kind of representation of, are based on those unhelpful assumptions. And they tend to kind of confirm our thinking, which is, oh, okay, that is what's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, it must be me. I'm the problem. He's just not that into, you know, he's just not that into me. Those kind of things. And sometimes I want to just scream and shake, (laughs) throw something at the screen. But I think that it's so interesting you say that because in starting the conversation, what you are giving the people around you is permission to also join in. And I think inevitably I am banging on about this stuff all the time I think all my friends you know just like yes we know we know yeah we know yeah okay thank you thank you for that book for Christmas yeah (laughs) and and all my family are like 
okay, you know, like, can we talk about something else on Christmas Day? But there is a permission giving part of it, which is that the doors open. And someone I spoke to recently said, I think if enough people were just asked, then it would change quite a lot. And we don't ask. The general rule of thumb when it comes to sex is don't ask. Mm. And I guess flipping this back to you being in the client chair, that's what the opposite of what you're going to get in psychosexual therapy. It's all about asking and totally. exploring and unpacking a word I've heard you say. But one thing I wanted to ask you, because I think this is a big part of the therapy process as well, is did you get a diagnosis from your therapist? And I think that this idea of diagnosis is also really interesting. What did that offer you? Because for some people, it can feel quite freeing. For other people, it can feel the opposite. Lots of people might be coming to psychosexual therapy. For example, I see a lot of people who've been referred by GPs or pelvic health physios, urologists, mm. specialist doctors, or they've had operations. And so I guess I wanted to make sure that that was a part of our conversation. And I think, obviously, how people feel about any kind of diagnosis depends on their context and where they're at and their experiences. I'm not saying it's it's blanket, but I think it's an important part of talking about this as a topic. Interestingly, I actually didn't. I don't think that, I mean, I've since done a lot of research. I've obviously written about it a lot and it was, I had situational anorgasmia, which is where you can't mm. orgasm in specific situations, typically like with a partner, but can on your own. But I don't actually think that was a phrase or that there was a diagnosis in my therapy sessions actually. And we just kind of began, yeah, it was very kind of narrative driven and it was really kind of led by my initially by my therapist going through my sexual history and the eating disorder and everything and then sessions that followed it was really up to me where the conversation would go and what I wanted to start with and mm. two things on that I think had I had a diagnosis I don't know whether that would have changed my experience of doing sex therapy at all I think that for me I felt it was a lot to process in terms of understanding of like understanding the eating disorder in context of sex and I think that I mean I don't I don't know but I don't know if I would have found it particularly helpful to have like a name for for what it was um and I think I also think I didn't really realize as I was unpacking everything how many layers there were to uncover mm. and unpack and I think I said I found doing the column really helpful as a way of kind of making me show up consistently and, and not quit it. It was also really hard, like processing something whilst also writing about it and trying to create... Onto a deadline. <laughs> to a deadline, trying to create great content. And there were points like the piece would go out and I'd just have like so many panic attacks and be so worried because I hadn't really processed the thing yet. And hmm. that was actually really difficult. Um, so I think that was the kind of the, the challenge for me, I think, was trying to process and then also perform in a weird way. Um, but mm, no, there was... That's what I was just thinking. Yeah, that was... And I think it wasn't... I'm glad I did it. There was no regrets there at all. But it was... It was. I felt at certain points I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And I think I kind of... There was actually a bit of a gap in, when I was writing the column that a couple weeks where I think there was no there was no column 
I think I needed to like catch up with where I'd got to in the therapy sessions and with what I was feeling in my head. And yeah, and in order to then be able to then move forward and write in a way that wasn't going to be detrimental from a mental health perspective. Mm. And I think that's really reflective of therapy in general. You know, I always say to people, some weeks you won't want to be here. Some weeks you'll turn up and be like, I've got nothing to talk about. Mm -hmm. Some weeks you'll get loads out of a session. Some weeks you'll walk away and think, that really didn't do much, but then something might happen or kind of come to you later in the week. And I always talk to people about, I mean, again, variability of everything else in our lives factor, which is there might be weeks where you come and you think that was just so pointless, but you have turned up and you've committed and you've done the therapy and it might feel frustrating. You might think that I'm bad at my job or that I haven't done a good enough job. There might be, you might have just not been in the mood. You might have just been like, I don't want to turn up. I don't, I don't want to do this. And other weeks you might come in and be like, right, I'm ready to talk about Mm -hmm. this. Or I feel really motivated or last session felt really good and I went away and I did loads with it or I thought loads about it or I had a light bulb moment and I'm ready to carry that on and therapy is ups and downs and there are definitely you know weeks where people can feel flat and weeks when people can feel energized and weeks where people can feel sad or excited or that there's potential or that it's a waste of time angry you know there's all of this stuff that comes up and I suppose my job as the therapist is to help people to contain that and to say you are allowed to be angry. You're Mm. allowed to think that I'm not doing my job very Mm. well. You're allowed to challenge me. You are allowed to say you've got that completely wrong. Or do you know what? I'm having a really strong reaction to what you're saying and I don't know why that is exactly. Or I think that you are making an assumption and this isn't the right one. And there's so much in that, but also it's a part of someone knowing themselves and something that I was taught and something that I always say is I will never claim to know you better than you know yourself Mm. as the professional here it is my job to manage the process and your job is the content and I will never tell you that I know you better than you know yourself Mm. because that is not my place and that is something that is is not possible for me to do and I help you we work together it's a collaboration it isn't I tell you you do this and then there is a change it's us working together to help you to help yourself and Mm -hmm. I think that's something as well something you mentioned at the start was this idea of you go to therapy and you expect to be fixed Mm -hmm. you're like okay I'm here I'm impatient fix me yeah do your job and that can be quite challenging I think for people that go into therapy with that expectation because it isn't always going to look like that some people might come have short-term therapy maybe six or 12 sessions and get what they need and feel that there has been enough change for them to have got what they wanted or for them to kind of be on their way to where they wanted but it's not a magic wand and I think also therapy can sometimes be presented that way yeah and it's it's just not true. And I think what you just said really resonated. There were weeks when I would show up to my therapy session 
And my wonderful therapist would be like, so what do you want to talk about? And I wanted her to tell me what to be thinking Mm. about and talking about. And there were weeks when I kind of felt like I didn't really know what to say. And I think then I would be like, well, I had this experience or I had this experience. But actually then in being forced to just reflect, we'd go down a tangent that would then actually be really helpful and revealing. And I think one thing I ended up finding particularly useful was knowing that I had someone to talk to about what I was going through. As I was beginning to unpack these sexual scripts and explore myself sexually, coinciding with the lifting of uh, lockdown laws. So I began having sex again and was like, oh, wow, that's great. Mm. But I found it helpful. I had a couple of like sexual relationships um, whilst doing um, sex therapy, one of which really challenged a lot of my boundaries which I didn't know I had and I found it so helpful and calming to know that I had a place to go and someone to process that with yeah because for me I felt like I'd learned I'd been given all these new lenses through which to see myself sexually and to I was beginning beginning to learn to navigate my body a little differently But I was still repeating all my usual mistakes in that I wasn't communicating. I was still feeling really anxious in sex. Back to default. Yeah, of course. It doesn't change overnight. But I Mm. found it helpful to then be able to take take the experiences and then talk to my therapist about them. And that became a really integral part of the therapy because it helped me, again, continue to build up this vocabulary with which to better understand my sexual self. And it was going through those experiences, I feel... I said, I think it's like, you know, it's an ongoing journey, but I really have developed a better understanding of my boundaries and where they lie and kind of how I need to enforce them. Mm. But it's a really long process. And I stopped doing sex therapy like quite, God, maybe, I don't know, half a year ago, I can't remember when, um, actually primarily for logistical reasons because my therapist is based in Australia, but also I had then started having sex and was able to orgasm in partnered sex for the for the first time in, in, as I said, like many, many years. So in that way, there had been a really tangible outcome to the sex therapy. So I mean, yes, if you're looking to tick, to tick the box of goals achieved, like it did work in that sense. But actually, I think it's been the narrative shift that has occurred that has been so, um, the impact of which has been so long term. And I mean, just getting me thinking and talking about sex so much more comfortably, I feel like what it did was put me on this like journey sorry to sound really like hippie dippy cliche <laughs> I'm on a journey a sexual journey but I really did kind of open this door for me which now obviously I've found so fascinating I've ended up focusing on my work on it but I do mm. find but it's, it, it did put me on the on the, on this journey that hasn't ended that I'm still looking to challenge ideas I have then like you know I'll have sex and I'll find myself repeating the same old patterns and but but mm-hmm. now I can see it. Now I can understand it. And then I can go back and be like, okay, I do need to communicate more. And it is, you're constantly, you know, it doesn't, you don't suddenly shake everything Change you blueprint overnight. Yeah. No, it's a long process. So I think to your point, sex therapy doesn't like, it doesn't have that like overnight impact. But I think, the long kind of long-term gradual way it helps you to change how you approach sex and how you navigate your sex yourself as a sexual being I think is what for me was so beneficial and so important mm. and I guess something I think that we haven't covered and you just mentioned it there in terms of logistical is the practicalities of seeing a psychosexual therapist now 
you saw a private therapist. Um, I am a private therapist. I've worked on various placements which have been through the NHS and people have been able to see psychosexual therapy, me as a psychosexual therapist, um, for free or for a limited time. And I think that, I guess that's something I also wanted to nod to here because it's a big part of it in terms of affordability, time, you know, being able to see someone. The pandemic changed, I suppose, one element of it, which is accessibility in terms of people didn't have to necessarily travel to get to the right therapist or they could see a therapist online. They could make it work around other elements of their life or their work. But the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists has a directory, which is where people can search for psychosexual therapists in the UK. But there are limiting factors here to the access to therapy, and in part, which is why I wanted to launch this podcast, because I want there to be more conversations that could be in some way therapeutic to people. But also, therapy isn't the only route to accessing help or advice around sexual wellness or sexual challenges, sexual difficulties. And I wanted to know if there was anything else that you have found really helpful. I um, an advisor for an app called Furley. Um, actually, mm. that's how we met, isn't it? Yes. Um, through Furley. Yeah. Um, and they, for me, are a really great resource mm. for people. They have audio-guided follow-along episodes, yeah. and it's very trauma-informed and has a lot of really useful content and mindful sex content and helping people to build that relationship with self. There are lots of other apps and products, and the sexual wellness space is really growing and I think that that's a really good thing. When I spoke to Bryony Cole for the episode that she and I did, she did say one thing, which is that it's a bit like the Wild West. There's no accountability necessarily. Um, yeah. And also we have to be aware that people launching products are a lot of the time trying to do that in order to make money as well as a difference. But I wanted to know if you had any resources you could share that are not psychosexual therapy that you think mm. have been helpful alongside it. Because... I am fully, fully aware that a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but mm. I can't afford psychosexual mm. therapy currently or it's not going to work for me currently or I can't f commit to that for a variety of reasons. But let, let's be honest, one mm. of the most limiting factors for therapy in general is financial. Mm. And the other thing I would say to that is if you are really looking for a psychosexual therapist and you can't afford their rates, is always ask people if they have low-cost or um, low-cost slots or lower-cost slots, which might be at a not-peak time. There are lots of therapy centres that offer that. Or if you can find a psychosexual therapist who is perhaps in training and trying to complete their hours or on placements, because there are options. Mm. And... I would love just to kind of be able to put that idea out there for people to know about. Mm. I think for me that we we talked earlier about how isolating sexual dysfunction can be and how isolating, yeah, that feeling of, of being, that feeling of feeling broken can be. So for me, I think it wasn't so much a singular resource as it was like beginning to tap into things like Furley, which do such a good job of, again, normalising sexual issues of talking about the impact that trauma can have and obviously even from a very practical note in their erotic audio guides explicitly verbalizing like 
sex, like talking about sex and genitalia and how you might feel. All things that I personally had built up all these defense mechanisms against, shame, embarrassment, all this sort of stuff. So I think it's platforms like Fairly um, that do a really good job at just helping you again, I think, build up that sexual vocabulary and feel less alone in your experiences. And it's really why I set up sex talks as well. Um, not to just do a massive plug for what I'm working on, but <laughs> because I did want to create a space where, you know, it's not sex therapy, but it's a space where more kind of open, honest conversations about sex can be had. And where, because I think for me, that's the first step is breaking down the taboos that still exist around this topic and particularly female pleasure and making people feel less alone in that and one thing we do at every sex talk session is at the very end so I'll interview a panel of women um, typically who work kind of in around the sexual wellness space and at the end we'll do an anonymous Q&A session which I usually when I end an event I've been working events for years you have like one question or two questions at the end everyone's like you know ready to go home I genuinely get a stack that we don't have time to get through of anonymous Mm. questions, which to me is so reflective of the fact that so many people have so many thoughts and queries and questions and anxieties and worries that they don't feel necessarily comfortable to share openly, but given the opportunity, definitely want to have them discussed. So for me, creating context in which those, that person can at least have an opportunity to put their thought anxiety out there and have people kind of reflect on it it's, it's a, it starts the conversation I think as you said earlier on and when you're discussing it it begins it starts the conversation it removes that first kind of barrier of like embarrassment yeah and so I think and and same to like your podcast and you know I, I'm love Esther Perel I listen to a lot of her podcasts reading her book um Emily, Emily Nagowski whose name I always get wrong um yeah. there's so many brilliant people who are doing such a great job of just having these sorts of conversations breaking down a lot of the myths and misconceptions that still surround sex and particularly the female pleasure taboo that to me I just like I constantly I'm like listening and consuming as much as possible because it's just all adding to that kind of yeah that bank of better understanding and I think as I said before, it's like, I think it's, a, you know, it's a whole lifetime's work of like learning to better understand yourself and understand yourself sexually. So I think all these kind of learning resources are just a great way of continuing that. And every time, and every time I listen to your podcast, I go away having a kind of new perspective on some aspect of my sexual life or, you know, something I'm thinking about around sex, even with Brian Cole episode, as you just mentioned there, on like, you know, what is the future of technology and how it's re- affecting how we have sex and really made me think like how how her dating apps affected how I have sex. So I think, mm. yeah, anything you can find which is actively trying to create a space for these sorts of conversations, I think is is really helpful and also just on a personal level, breaking down any like embarrassment and shame around this topic. And I think... That's a really good point for us to finish on, isn't it? I think that this just this idea that, you know, ironically we're finishing on um, a point which is not everybody needs therapy, but I really think that that has to be a, a critical part of this conversation. And I, as a therapist, say it all the mm-hmm. time because I think there is a danger in someone talking from a position like mine where obviously we're advocating by nature mm-hmm. our work, but I think it is really important to say, but lots of people might not need therapy and actually you might be struggling with sex a bit and reading an amazing book about sex or listening to a podcast about sex might shine a light on something or create a shift in something which means you do one thing differently and that can have a a knock-on effect or 
you really loved Emily Nagalski's book, for example, and then you go on and read more and that starts to open up your perspective and that starts a different conversation with your partner and then that Mm. creates a shift in your sex life and that might have been all that you needed and I think that it, it is important and we are getting so much amazing content from so many amazing experts at the moment that I would really encourage people just to go out, listen, learn, read, explore because breaking away from the tunnel vision about that we have about sex or what we mean by sex or how we define sex for me is probably the biggest thing that psychosexual therapy could offer. It just it's just takes off a burden you just don't need. Mm. It's just so much nicer to not have a weight of worry, anxiety and expectation around sex Mm. and obviously like I mean I still feel anxious about sex I still get nervous before I have sex with someone new but I feel it's just sex therapy and and you know and a lot of the resources that I've continued reading thereafter have just made it feel less scary and a bit more playful and I think that is for me the well not all you can want but a lot of what you really want from sex and so I think for anyone who feels that when they think about sex, it feels heavy and it feels scary and it feels weighty because that's definitely how it felt for me. Yeah, I think beginning to explore and read and think and potentially do therapy as well is just a really great way of lightening that load. Because sex, as you said, it should be fun. And I think why also I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast that I for a long time just said, I'm just not a sexual being. It's just not who I am whatever don't it's not like worth the time for me and I you know I'm healthy I'm fit I exercise a lot I read a lot I can't believe that for so long I cut off such a like key component to my overall well-being thinking that that didn't matter at a very basic level masturbating is such a great anxiety reliever and being able to orgasm is genuinely such a good way I used to have tons of panic attacks it's a really good stress reliever so I think if so someone that thinks you know that you're just not sexual you just don't work I think it really is something worth exploring because just like I wouldn't stop exercising because I realize it's a really important part of my health sexual well-being is too I hope you enjoyed this episode of the sexual wellness sessions if you'd like to join us for more conversations you can click subscribe on either apple or spotify podcasts and if you have a moment please leave us a review